Kevin, thank you for shepherding us in the Word this morning through prayer and uh, for Peter and Udi for helping us tune our hearts to praise a Lord who is worthy to be praised and praise is befitting of the righteous because we have a great God, a good God, a compassionate God. Well, I have a couple of plugs before I get started. Um, I hope if you've had the opportunity to get one of these books, which we gave out during our anniversary uh, event, we have more of them. If you do not have one, even if you're not a member, please see Ryan Chan, um, To Seek and to Save by Sinclair Ferguson, that walks us through uh, each day through the Gospel of Luke in preparation of um, Easter. And uh, I know personally it's been a huge encouragement to me this week. Uh, my wife, I heard her shout out from her desk at a distance saying, Sons of Thunder, those are our boys. And uh, anyways, you know, as you read through Scripture, you see people who you know. And uh, anyways, maybe you'll see my family. So if you need a copy and you want to see and read about my family... Please see Ryan and grab one of these. I also want to make a plug for this evening for Cornerstone. Uh, this evening we're going through uh, the Gospel, Marriage, and Family Part 1. And uh, we're going to go through Genesis 1 and 2 and Matthew 19, but really look at what is a Christian marriage. How many of you grew up in Christian families? Okay. How many of you, after growing up in a Christian family, understood what a, a Christian marriage is to be? and what it's all about and what makes it tick. I think many of us have grown up in quote-unquote cultural Christian families, and yet the reality is much of what we've seen and witnessed and grown up with, including the churches that we grew up in, actually as we come to Jesus' words, they look a lot more like the world than it looks like Jesus. And so we're going to consider that this evening. What is God's vision and provision for marriage and family, and we're going to devote a portion of that time to addressing singleness. Is singleness a blessing or a curse? Is marriage a blessing or a curse? So whether you're married or not, I think this will be of great encouragement and benefit to you uh, this afternoon, 4 o'clock via Zoom. Well, this morning we return to Genesis 3:15 and to the Lord God's judgment of sin and the serpent in the garden of Eden and by and large talk of the Lord God's justice and judgment of sin is something that makes most people feel uncomfortable and quite frankly so it should because the Lord God's just judgment of sin is not something that anyone should take lightly this past week, Bette Midler made light of the fact that perhaps the storms in Texas were God's displeasure with some senators there who are among the biggest and most vocal champions, allegedly, of God culture. But as we come to God's Word, we see that the judgment of the Lord and His justice is not something that we should make light of. It is a very serious thing. Lives are at stake. Souls are at stake. There is suffering involved. It is indeed weighty, and it's understandable. It is not something, brothers and sisters, that we should feel comfortable with. And yet, as Peter shepherded us this morning, many times God's goodness and grace makes us feel intentionally uncomfortable and especially uncomfortable with ourselves and things in our lives. And sometimes we can fail to see that that is God's kindness and mercy to us. And rather than running from it, we live in what's called the cancel culture. You cancel anything that makes you feel uncomfortable about yourself or that does not validate yourself. And sometimes we miss out on the graciousness and goodness of God, His great love for us. Because, brothers and sisters, the love of the cross is a love that makes us feel uncomfortable with ourselves. 
that we are inadequate, that we are unable to save ourselves, that we are sinners, that we are not good people like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, so that we will look up instead of trying to fix and manage our sin ourselves and do patch jobs, and instead we would look to the God who loves us and gave his son to pay the just price, life for life, blood for blood, to deliver us and forgive us and to make us children and the seed of the one true God. We miss out on that, brothers and sisters, if all we do every time we feel uncomfortable is to run from whatever makes us feel uncomfortable or challenged. And this is especially true, brothers and sisters, with regards to the judgment and the justice of the Lord. It's something that's terribly, terribly misunderstood and abused within the Christian church. From one extreme of of preaching hellfire and brimstone at everything that we hate or that's different than us or that we do not like to not talking about it at all and talking about how God loves everybody and everybody's perfect and we love unconditionally and just as I am and just accept me as I am and why can't you accept me as I am? The both extremes exist in the church and they are both lies from the pit. One of my favorite sayings, lies from the pit, distortions of the good news of Jesus Christ and what's ending up and what happens is that so many people are lost and going astray because they bought these things hook, line, and sinker. That's what Peter was referring to as he was trying to shepherd that co-worker in his life. And you wake up later and you find out when everything's falling apart and you discover that the house that you built is built on sand and we blame God. Why is this happening? I went to church. I served in the children's ministry. I helped out. I did A, B, C, D, and E. Why is it all falling apart? Until we open up God's word and we see, well, we weren't really living Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ. We were living an American Christianity and an American dream. What is often overlooked, brothers and sisters, from Genesis onwards, is that God's word repeatedly exhorts God's people to place their hope in the justice of God. We are called and exhorted, brothers and sisters, to place our hope not in the things of this world, but in the justice and the judgment of the Lord. As you go through Scripture, you see from Old Testament to New Testament, the prophets and the apostles, they look forward to the day of judgment, not because of the suffering or the pain that is coming, but because the Lord's justice and the judgment of His Word is an act of a good and loving God that brings goodness to the earth by setting things straight. The people of God, even though indeed they have suffered, and nobody exalts suffering, but even though they have suffered, it's especially during times and seasons of trials and tribulations, times like these, that the people of God place their hope in God's promise of justice. Why? Because unlike the justice of men, the justice of God and His Word is good. And it comes from the Lord's steadfast love. And it is the grace and truth and help we and this world so desperately need. You have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, and we will read through this text again, and Lord willing, get down to verse 16. Genesis 3, 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this past week we have witnessed the winter storm in middle America and in Texas. And I do want to exhort us as a church that we need to be in prayer for everyone in those areas. We witnessed an incredible tragedy. We need to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And we need to help brothers and sisters in any way we can and show the love of Christ first in prayer, but also as the Lord provides opportunity even to be good Samaritans. It's heartbreaking to watch these things unfold. And we've witnessed yet again the wealthiest and arguably the most powerful nation in the world's failure and inability to protect and care for its citizens, especially the least among us. The tragic irony which newspapers all across the states, from the Washington Post to the Wall Street Journal have noted, is that here is Texas, the energy capital and the power capital of America, one whose system was apparently idealized and looked to as a model of free market energy. And yet it has proven to be powerless when it matters and where it matters most. And we have seen from the images on the media as you've seen, where here we are allegedly in the first world of American power looking like a third world with people burning wood and charcoal in their homes, using their trucks to power their, their homes. And we look like a place that's in the third world. And this week, by God's grace, we were able to track and follow some of the people who we've known in Texas. And there was a couple, graciously, who we knew, who God brought to the Bible study that we served in, Julie and I served in. And they were able to open up their home to two other families who did not have water or heat and bring them into their homes until their pipes, I believe, broke. And we witnessed this horror and were in shock and surprise. The Wall Street Journal mentioned today, or maybe it was the Washington Post, one of them that I was reading this morning, how what has unfolded has been an epic blame shift. Those were the words that it used, an epic blame shift of who is to blame for this. And yet if we open our Bibles, brothers and sisters, and we come back to Genesis 3, the Lord God shows us that this is not a new story. In fact, in America, it happens every five to seven years, whether it's Hurricane Katrina or each of these different places that come along the way. The Lord God shows us this is not a new story. From the beginning, it is the first man and woman's prideful trust in themselves as opposed to a humble trust in God and His Word 
that leaves them exposed and naked and scrambling to cover themselves inadequately. And the sad irony in Genesis 3 is that the very person whom they have shunned is the one who graciously provides the help and protection they so desperately need. And it begins with the help and protection of his word and his justice. Brothers and sisters, as you go through Scripture, the reason the people of God hope in the justice of God, even in hard and difficult times, is because they look to it and the word of the Lord as the only hope for the weak and the oppressed and the needy and the vulnerable. Because certainly the rich and the powerful are not going to do it. And certainly sinful men are not going to do it. And that's what we're seeing, brothers and sisters, even as a senator who champions God and God culture is on an airplane to Cancun while his state wrestles with horrific casualties. Our hope, brothers and sisters, and Adam and Eve failed to see this, is in the word and the justice of the Lord that God has given to protect even the least among us. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. The Lord God's judgment corrects and protects from evil according to his word. The Lord God's judgment corrects and protects from evil according to God's word. We tend to look at God's judgment and think of it as being wrongly condemned or punitive or here it comes hellfire and brimstone. And that is a part but not the whole. And when we take the part, we distort the gospel. God's judgment and his justice is far bigger than just hellfire and brimstone. That's part of it. And we're going to deal with that this morning. But God's word and his justice and his judgment is given to correct and protect his children from evil. That's why it exists. When sheep are threatened by a predator, the good shepherd does not hesitate to use his rod and his staff to strike the predator and to warn his sheep. And the greater the danger, the greater the force and the greater the strike and the greater the love tap to his sheep and the strike against the predator. The Lord God's justice, his staff and his rod, his word is used to point out real danger and real evil. And that's what the Lord God's justice does and the justice of his word. It points out to us what is truly dangerous and what is truly evil. And to do that, the Lord's God's justice must come out and rightly condemn and call sin for what it is. A violation and betrayal of the God who has created us and loved us. A violation and betrayal of His Word. A walking away from the only person and Word that gives us life and love. And in Genesis 3, what we just read, it is upon Satan's mouthpiece, the predatory serpent and deceitful serpent, that the Lord God as a good father and as a good shepherd, first brings to bear the rod and staff of his word. And as noted last week, the Lord God's judgment against a serpent comes in the form of a curse in verse 14. Because you have done this, a reference to the serpent's use of Satan's lies, his distortion of God's word, and his deceit that led the Lord God's sheep astray to disobey Him and to go against His word and His commandment. Because you have done this, distorted the word of the Lord and deceived, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now you'll recall last week in Scripture, to be cursed by God is to be publicly condemned as guilty of betraying both God and His word and to be set apart for God's judgment against sin. And this is a judgment, brothers and sisters, that comes not according to the opinion and words of men. The church has abused this many times, where the judgment that's being brought down is based on the words or opinion of men. Think of the Spanish Inquisition. We think of many of the martyrs who have been torched. We think of William Tyndale, burnt and strangled. Okay? This is not the opinions of men. It is the judgment and justice according to the word of God. 
that justly requires measure for measure, life for life. Here we see God gives no pass for sin. He does not sweep it under the carpet. He calls it out and brings it out into the open. But what's worth noting here, brothers and sisters, is here the Lord God gives the first judgment and the first curse against the first and greatest evil. And what is it? It's the lies of the devil. And it's against the one who speaks the devil's lies and distorts God's word, especially for personal gain. God's judgment, brothers and sisters, points out the danger of sin. God's justice puts evil in its place. And as God walks through this for our benefit through Moses, he points out, First on his priority list, it lets us know, brothers and sisters, what does God think about pastors and preachers and politicians who distort God's word for their personal gain? They are the most cursed, I believe. Who does God hate and object to the most? Those who use his word to lead his sheep astray. And that's why in the New Testament we are cautioned by the apostles not to enter into teaching the word lightly, to come with fear and trembling. Charles Spurgeon used to come into the pulpit, and every time he used to come into the pulpit privately, he would pray for the Lord to have mercy on him. Why? Brothers and sisters, if we do not rightly divide this word, if the Spirit of the Lord is not working in our hearts, if the message is not from God but comes from men, we are leading sheep astray to their destruction. Because, brothers and sisters, it's only the truth and grace in the word of the Lord that leads to life. And then to go and to manipulate that, to fill a church, to fill the polling stations, to get elected to office... God makes clear here in Genesis 3 for false prophets and false pastors and false politicians what the Lord thinks of that and how his justice handles that. It brings down the curse of the Lord. Why is that? Brothers and sisters, any distortion of God's word destroys not just the physical body, It destroys lives, it destroys homes, it destroys families, it destroys marriages, it destroys churches, and it destroys everything that matters most by separating us from the life and love of God. Brothers and sisters, why do we spend so much time at Lagos going through how to read the Bible correctly? in a way that honors the Lord. It's not so that you can become better Bible scholars. It's because your life depends upon it. Your marriages depend upon it. Your eternity and our church depends upon it. The end is not just to know hermeneutics. The end is to walk rightly with God and to share with others His truth in a way that points them to Christ and His good news, doesn't draw them away. Brothers and sisters, God's curse against those who mishandle his word is severe. But the good news of verses 14 and 15 is that unlike the justice and judgment of men, the Lord God's justice and judgment does not simply condemn and punish. It doesn't stop with condemning and punishing. And this is something that is very frequently forgotten in the church. The holy and just judgment of God's word does what no man can and will. It undoes the work of sin. And it does so, brothers and sisters, by bringing us back to God and bringing us back to his word. Are there consequences to our sin? Absolutely. Does it affect others? Absolutely. Can we turn the clock back? Absolutely not. You cheat in your wife you gamble, you steal, people are going to suffer and that scar is going to be there. But you know what? When God's judgment comes and his justice comes, what God's judgment and the justice of his word begins to do is it begins to undo the lie of sin, the deceit of sin, and the pattern of sin in our lives. 
And that, brothers and sisters, is welcome and good news for those who are in bondage to the sin of this world. It does so, brothers and sisters, by bringing us back to God and bringing us back to His Word and putting His Word in its rightful place in our lives. In America, our prisons are referred to as correctional facilities. Gives a new meaning to the word correction. You can talk to Ben and find out how much correction is happening in our correctional facilities. But in Scripture, to correct is to make straight what has been broken or bent. To correct is to make straight what has been broken or bent. The goal of the orthopedic surgeon is to set and straighten a broken bone so that it can be used again. The aim of the good shepherd in his use of his rod and staff is to bring a wandering or stray sheep back to the straight and narrow, the path of God's word. That is the purpose, that is the aim. And in verse 14, the Lord God's curse corrects and protects against evil. How does it do it? It does so first by putting true evil in its rightful place, according to God's word. Because you have done this, cursed are you, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. With these words, the Lord God strikes down the serpent. What the serpent has done with the devil's lies. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes man and woman in his image, and then he blesses them, and he places them and gives them a place of rule and dominion over all the living creatures of the earth. And that includes the serpent. But the serpent with the devil's lies has rebelled against that, and he's conspired with the woman. And he's saying, hey, we can be better than what God's given us. You can have a better marriage. You can have a better car. You can have a better job. You can have a better church. You can have better friends. You can have a better family. You can have all of these things if you just bend the rules a little bit. Did God really say that? It's just a a joy killer. So what the serpent has done is the serpent uses the devil's lies, as the devil's lies always do, to lie and exalt itself above God's ordained order. And so God with the curse, as you see what he does with his justice, he brings the serpent back down to where he's supposed to be. Under the first man and woman, you're going to be down below But he goes one step further. When he says, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, the curse separates and bans the serpent from fellowship with the children of God. The serpent will become the symbol in ancient Israel of what is unclean and filthy and not permitted in the fellowship of God's people. Unclean, cut off, separated. And God's justice is coming out, and he's separating. God's justice separates to show that evil and sin and the devil's lies have no place in the household and family of God. Brothers and sisters, that's a loving thing. It's a loving thing that God does when he comes into your life and he exposes sin and he lets you know this has no place in the household and the heart of a child of God. That's a loving thing, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable. And if you go to our church's doctrinal statement, you're going to see not only an explanation of church discipline, but you are also going to see an explanation of the principle of separation. Separation from sin. That the gospel calls God's children to separate from the world and the sin of the world so that you can be devoted entirely to the God who gave his life for you and has made you his child. When you get baptized, you die to the world and you come into the Lord's house. You take his name. You become a Christian. You become an anointed one. You are part of his family. Are you perfect? No. Are you without sin? No. But what you realize is, this stuff doesn't come into the house. We work with that with our boys. We make it clear there's certain things that are not to come into our household. And if they are, there's a reckoning. Okay, why? Because we love our boys and we don't want those things to affect them, whether it's on the TV screen or the iPad or from their friends. 
When we hear things that come, where did you hear that word? And we do it, brothers and sisters, out of love. God's justice separates and it puts evil in its right place, outside of the household of God, not in the house. And it does so to protect. And you see, that's what Eve did. She listened to the devil. She let his lies come in. And that, those lies and the deceit and the sin came into the house and into the heart and into the home and destroyed her marriage and her family and her life. And that's why Proverbs says that we're to guard the heart. Ladies, it, it, it's not, uh, that, that statement is not a curse against dating or getting to know a guy. It's the idea that you're to protect your heart because from it flow the wellsprings of the soul that you need to guard against sin and the devil's lies, including lies about your appearance, what the world thinks, your value, all of that garbage from the world. You're to guard against that and to fill your heart with the goodness and the truth of the Lord. With God's curse, God is putting evil and the devil's lies in its proper place, outside of the household of God. And in verse 15, this separation from sin and evil, according to God's word, continues, even as the Lord says to Satan's mouthpiece, I will put, that word put, Hebrew, Seth, it's from where we get the name Seth, the Lord's appointed. I will put, I will set, I will establish enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. Enmity, brothers and sisters, is the opposite of love and peace. It refers to the hostility between enemies that inevitably leads to conflict and war and death, where one lives and one dies, and one is a victor and one is a loser. Here, by God's curse, no longer will the servant of sin and its offspring be able to enter into the lives of God's children, unopposed, as a friend, as he did in the garden. No longer will the woman and the serpent be allies. Instead, they will be enemies. And from this moment forward, there will always be suspicion, fear, hostility, and war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And though for a season the children of Satan may deceive and dominate, there's God-given hostility between good and evil, between the serpent seed and the seed of woman, will inevitably lead to open war between the children of Satan and the children of God. Brothers and sisters, to this day, this God-given enmity, this hostility, this division, corrects and protects God's children. We see that. Mothers, do you tell your children not to take candy from a stranger? Absolutely. Do you instruct your children not to let strangers into the, to the home? When the doorbell rings, do you say, have a look, and if it's not someone you know, come and get your parents? Absolutely. There's a suspicion. There's a fear. And you want to instill that in your children. That's a gift from the Lord, brothers and sisters. That war, that enmity. Yes, God has put war on earth. He's put war on earth for a reason, that we would expose and see and divide the line and have a fear that evil and sin and the devil's lies are real. And they destroy both body and soul. I'm reading the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of many that I've read. He probably was saved in the African-American church in New York while attending a liberal seminary there. But what's amazing to see is a conviction that the rest of the church did not see, that Hitler was sowing lies that ran contrary to the gospel, not to be listened to, and what was going to destroy much of what he knew and what he loved. And ultimately, it would cost him his life. But he did so with the conviction that there is something worth more than bodily life. 
There is a greater treasure, brothers and sisters, that is worth more. And that enmity and the wars that come highlight for us and focus what is of most value. That's what God's justice does. It reminds us, brothers and sisters, that cars and homes and jobs and careers and big houses, that's not the be-all and end-all, and that's not the great prize. Our fellowship with the God who made us and saved us for himself is the great prize of all, brothers and sisters. We should be afraid, brothers and sisters, of the serpent that bites at our heel. We should realize that evil does have a sting. We should see that the lies of the devil destroy and have an impact and effect. And we should be prepared and ready, as the Apostle Paul says, to be prepared and sober-minded for battle. When you go through the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he repeatedly says, be sober and vigilant. Jesus says, be sober and vigilant if you're a child of God. Why? There's no place for sleeping where Satan and the devil prowls around like a, 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 a lion waiting for someone to devour. Pastor Mark, you make me feel nervous. You make me feel anxious. You make me feel afraid when you come around, when you talk about sin. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. What's my response? Good. Good. I, I hope I do make you feel uncomfortable. If it's about your problem with pornography, if it's about your problem with neglecting your family and devotions in the home, if it's about your problem with pursuing your career over the things of Christ, if I'm making you feel uncomfortable, then good. That's a start. When I used to come home in high school and college and I used to break curfew, I'd have the fear of God in me. Because you know that, that nice little Asian lady who shows up at Lagos from time to time, who you see with the Hawaiian background, <laughs> sitting there with her glasses and she looks sweet and nice. Let me tell you, when I broke curfew, I had the fear of God in me. And brothers and sisters, in time, I look back and I say, that was good. I should feel uncomfortable with disobeying the mandates and the standards of the home that were set there to protect me. We should feel uncomfortable with those things. We should feel uncomfortable with the justice of the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Brothers and sisters, sin destroys, and it destroys what matters most, and it destroys with lies, and it destroys with the lies of the world that says what is good is bad and what is bad is good. And the Lord God's judgment corrects and protects us by undoing the lie. And it shows us the lie that sin is no big deal, that sin is my friend. The world is my friend. These things are my friend. These idols in my life, they are my friends. They are, in fact, the enemy that is biting at our heels and seeking to destroy us. Our war-torn world is a product of God's curse against sin. But it is a necessary part of God's plan of salvation that brings sinners to repentance and to look to the Lord. And that brings us to our second point this morning. The Lord God's judgment brings salvation and triumph over sin. The Lord God's judgment brings salvation and triumph over sin according to God's word. In verse 15, the Lord God concludes his judgment and curse of the serpent with the decree, he, a reference to the woman's seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Old Testament scholar Kenneth Matthews notes, the curse upon the serpent includes its final destruction by the descendant of the woman. The serpent was instrumental in the undoing of the woman and in turn, the woman 
will ultimately bring down the serpent through her offspring. Brothers and sisters, the Lord God's curse against sin does indeed bring a very real holy war against sin and evil that does indeed involve very real suffering for the seed of woman. From the bite and sting of the deceiver, pain is inflicted. This past week, one of the men who I had the privilege of going through seminary with, who's a good friend of Ricardo, was incarcerated in Canada because his church insisted on continuing to gather without wearing masks and worshiping in Edmonton, Alberta. Now, we may disagree or not see eye to eye on how we should worship in COVID-19, but at the end of the day, in his conscience, for the sake of the gospel, he made that decision. And for that, they decided to incarcerate him and put him in a medium-level penitentiary, not a light-level one, away from his family, because he refused not to go and preach and hold gatherings, they said, we will keep you in custody in prison until you choose to comply. There is a cost, brothers and sisters, with following by faith the convictions of God's word. It does come at a cost. However, what God promises here God promises here, as he talks about, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord God shows it is the very bite and sting of sin and Satan that will be sin and Satan's undoing. Sin always destroys itself and its perpetrators and it is always frustrated in the end. When we gather together with those who insist on not repenting and being sinful and pursuing their own path, all you need to do is to let these people talk. And they will talk and talk and share their lies and lies and lies until at the end of the conversation they've exposed everything. How will the Lord accomplish this? It is through the blessing of God's word in Genesis 1.28. God always saves according to his word. In Genesis 1.28, after God creates the first man and woman in his image, God says to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's blessing is that the man and woman, the first man and woman, are going to be able to give life and fill the earth with God's life. And we see it through the original promise and plan and blessing of God's word given to the first man and woman before pride and sin destroyed their lives and world. It's through the promise of a seed, the seed of God's word, that God will both provide salvation and triumph over sin and he will bring triumph and salvation over sin. Many times we ask, why doesn't God just come down and zap and fix the problem? But here we see God's justice. His plan of salvation is going to come through the promise that the serpent tried to negate. The promise of Genesis 1.28, the women, the woman, excuse me, the first woman and the man, they will have a child. That will not stop. Death has come in. Sin has come in. But God is still going to bless and he's going to provide fertility and he's going to provide life. And it's through the life that God gives that ultimately the sin and the deceitful lies and the serpent is going to be destroyed. The good news of God's word is that neither sin nor the suffering of sin can derail the purpose and the plan and the promise of God's word. That's what God's justice does. God intervenes and steps and says, no way is your sin or what you do going to stop my plan of salvation. And brothers and sisters, if you've ever sinned, that's good, good news. Hebrew scholar J. Alec Moitier says, the Lord does not revise his plans in light of his children's rebellion and apostasy. 
The Lord does not revise his plans in light of his children's rebellion and apostasy. Just because our children decide to have a bad day and be ugly and difficult does not change the fact that there's going to be Bible study and Bible school and church on Sunday. God's plan and his purpose prevails. And brothers and sisters, that's good news. That's a good parent. That's something you can bank on if you failed or struggled with sin. God's word and his plan is going to continue. And God's justice, what it does is it wakes us up and it brings us back to God's plan. And God's justice destroys sin and it delivers God's people specifically by bringing us back to his word. And nowhere, brothers and sisters, is this more evident than the cross of Christ what we sang about repeatedly this morning. And this brings us, brothers and sisters, to our final point this morning. The judgment of God's word leads us to Christ and his cross. The judgment of God's word leads us to Christ and his cross. As you go through the scriptures, brothers and sisters, from Genesis onwards, a holy war does indeed ensue between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Where the seed of the woman refers to God's chosen, those who live and love and die by faith in God and his word and in his promise. And that refers to Abel. And that refers to Seth. And that refers to Noah and Abraham all the way through. Those who are chosen by God, but those who by faith live and suffer and die by faith in the promises of God. As you see that line and you walk through, you see those men, many times they get the short end of the stick. Many times they are persecuted. Many times the groups around them seem to have a much better materialistic deal than they do. But it doesn't matter because the Lord is their inheritance. And to Abraham, who by faith, left his home for a land he did not know. God promises that he will give him a seed and he will make his descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sands by the sea. And that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And those who bless him will be blessed and those who curse him will be cursed. By contrast, the seed of the serpent, as you walk through Scripture, refers to anyone and everyone who give themselves over to the devil's lies and the lordship of sin for the things of this world. And you think of that tension between the two that exists, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was a liar. But you know what? When God confronted him, he placed his trust in the Lord. Unlike Esau, who sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. And so this tension goes all the way through Scripture. And from the beginning, this enmity and war extends to Israel and the idolatrous nations around it. We also have King David and Saul. But as we go through the history, what happens as you get to the prophets? is the Lord begins to make clear that not all of Israel is Israel, as Paul says. That there is an enmity and a battle and a war between good and evil, between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, that is taking place globally between Israel and the other nations, but also within Israel. There is a war without, but there is a war within. Through this time, the prophets talk about the justice and judgment of the Lord, even as Israel turns its back on God. And the waves of the Lord God's judgment come. What are they? Natural disasters, wars, famine, and plague. And what these judgments do, brothers and sisters, is it puts evil in its proper place. It exposes who truly belongs to the Lord and who trusts in Him, and who are simply pretenders and deceivers? Seed of the serpent. 
deceiving with lies in the house of God as well as outside. God's judgment begins in the household of the Lord, Old Testament and New Testament. And the Lord brings his judgment first in the household of the Lord to expose who is real and who trusts in him, who is truly a seed of the woman, and who is a seed of the devil. And when we come to the Gospels, the war continues. Even as the promised seed, child born of a virgin, in the fullness of time arrives, Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins. And what is the outcome, brothers and sisters, of Jesus' gospel ministry? It ends at the cross. And at the cross, Jesus is killed, accused, humiliated, and rejected by Gentiles, the Romans, by politicians, Pilate and Herod, but also by the religious authorities. And when you look throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus from the very beginning is opposed by all of those. In fact, the opposition is a validation of his Messiahship that he is indeed the Son of God. What happens when Jesus ministers? Herod wants him killed. What happens when his gospel ministry starts? Satan tries to tempt him. And then all the evil spirits cry out and shout out and, and push back at Jesus. But what's interesting as you go through is the repeated statement, you brood of what? Vipers is reserved for the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Bible experts. That's not by accident, brothers and sisters. John the Baptist says that and then calls them to show fruit in keeping with repentance. His point is, you're lying and you're deceiving and you're trading in the devil's lies. You are taking the word of God and you're twisting it for your own advantage to validate your own righteousness rather than turning to God and admit that you're a sinner like everybody else and you need the grace and truth that only Christ, the Son of God, can give. And throughout Jesus' ministry, you look up snake and vipers, or vipers in particular, they are reserved for those who are the religious elite. It's at the cross, brothers and sisters, that God shows his justice, true punishment against sin, life for life, that sin and the devil's lies destroy what is innocent. And God crushes his own son and gives him the punishment we deserve to show that his forgiveness is just, that his love is great, that his mercy is greater than our sin. And as the serpent and the children of the serpent triumph and sting the heel, that is the opportunity and the occasion in which the seed of woman crushes the serpent's head and demonstrates that God's mercy and grace and love and justice is indeed greater than our sin. Brothers and sisters, that should give us hope. That should give us hope. But what ends up happening, brothers and sisters, is the cross ends up dividing. It divides homes, it divides churches, it divides families. From those who are willing to come to the cross and say, I am a sinner, I cannot save myself, the justice I deserve is death. Lord Jesus, you who have given your life, are the you are the only one who can save me. Your blood is the only thing that can draw me near. I'm willing to forsake everything in this world for the pearl of great price, for the great prize. And that comes, brothers and sisters, at the foot of the cross. And that's what divides churches. That's what divides seminaries. That's what divides families. That's what divides fellowships, brothers and sisters. And that's what Paul writes about all the way through the New Testament, that the cross has become folly, that I'm being persecuted for the sake of the cross. But we are saved, brothers and sisters, as the apostle Paul was by the very power and justice of the cross. Because that is the place where God forgives and justifies sinners through the precious blood of the Lamb. 
I want to close this time with three applications for you, maybe four. What does this say with regards to natural disasters? What does this say of places in Texas? Brothers and sisters, it doesn't say that we are better than Texas. It doesn't say that we are more righteous than Texas. It doesn't say that there are not believers who lost their lives or are suffering in a place like Texas. But what natural disasters do demonstrate is that the power and wisdom and strength of men is inadequate to take care of the weakest among us. That there is something of greater worth and value than power or oil or a great grid or a great state. It's the love of Christ, brothers and sisters, and the power of the cross. And that is what we need to repent and turn to. Natural disasters expose what is truly in our heart, whether it's the flooding of a kitchen or the flooding of a state. It demonstrates what's truly in our heart, and it demonstrates what we trust in. Do we trust in the Lord, or do we trust in our wealth or our resources? That's what happens when we get squeezed, brothers and sisters. It shows whether, even if we proclaim God and say we're part of the Southern Baptist Church, whether we're flying to Cancun when the rest of the folks are freezing, it raises the question, okay, what's really in our heart? God's judgment exposes who we place our trust in. Second application, parents and families. God's justice and judgment is what he calls for in our homes, not our justice and our judgment. Our homes are not to be the justice or the judgment of the Father. It is to be the justice and judgment of the word of the Lord. And the aim and the goal, brothers and sisters, is not punishment, though that may have a role. There may be a time for a timeout. There may be a time for the rod. But at the end of the day, and this is lost, the aim of justice and judgment in the home is not well-behaved children. Pharisees can do that quite well. The aim of justice and judgment in the home, brothers and sisters, is that our children would be brought to the cross of Christ that they would see that they cannot save themselves, they would see that they cannot manage or control their sin, that there is only one hope for them, the forgiveness of Christ which he gives readily, and the Spirit of God and the Word of God that will restore them to a place of fellowship. We lose sight of that. I've had to ask my children for forgiveness for sin, for being crabby or irritable or severe in my discipline. Forgetting, look, this is not Mark's justice that the Lord is calling for in the home. It's Christ's justice. And Christ's justice is found, brothers and sisters, at the cross. My role in raising my children and the justice in the home is to show them that evil has its place, that evil is wrong, that the lies of the devil will destroy their lives and everything around it, and what they so desperately need, that it's a justice that points them to the cross. Third and final application. If you are struggling with sin, God's justice gives you hope. The devil's lies are that your life is controlled by sin. You can either fix it on your own, which you can't, or this will never get better. But brothers and sisters, if you are a child of God, God's justice in your life Perhaps you may lose a job. Perhaps you may lose your health. Perhaps you may lose a spouse or something important. But the justice of the Lord shows you that there is something more important than all of these things. It's the love of God and the love of Christ that is demonstrated at the cross. That God will never abandon those he chooses, those he loves. Those who trust and place their hope in him. Those who come to Christ, he will by no means cast away. And the promise of God's justice is greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That Christ is greater and he will conquer sin. And where Christ is present, 
in his time and in his way, according to his word, according to his word, he will crush sin in your life. And that is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 16.20, what does he write? He says in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And he reminds those in Rome who will deal with great persecution. Yes, you will suffer. Yes, some of you will be martyred and you may die. But God will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the greater prize is the destruction and mortification of sin in your life and the presence of the love of Christ than anything this world has to offer. Brothers and sisters, if you are a child of God, celebrate and hope in His justice. Lord Jesus, you suffered and took our price, our penalty, our judgment, so that we might be forgiven. You have crushed the serpent's head. And we are presently engaged in a spiritual battle and warfare on a daily basis, which will not end until you come. Help us, Lord Jesus, to place our hope not in the things of this world, but like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, like Moses, like the Apostle Paul and Peter. Lord Jesus, help us to place our faith and our hope not in the things or the people of this world. May our hope be in the justice of the cross. In your name we pray, amen.